excuse me for that. Well, on Friday, I went on a walk uh, to Discovery Park with my children. Um, and we made our way, uh, we, you know, skirted the edge of Fort Lawton, where we saw the celebration of all the veterans taking place that day. And we parked and made our way along the beach, just down on the south side by the lighthouse. And my kids, they jumped log to log down the shoreline. And as I watched them, I called out and I said, watch out, make sure that you test where you step because the logs can move. They can't all bear your weight. And as the words came out of my mouth, I felt the stab that indeed this same image might hold true for this week that we have all endured. For it has been a watershed week. Those that are strong fiscal conservatives and deeply pro-life and have voted in accordance with those values, many of those have been driven into secrecy. And in their wake, we have had a flurry of racist and bigoted and anti-feminist responses. And we have been reminded once again that we cannot lump everybody into one category. And those that were looking forward to the shattering of the glass ceiling, who had championed the work of national health care, and who had supported actively reproductive rights and queer rights, some of those feel like the world has collapsed under their feet. And as the stories fly around social media faster than we can even keep track, some of those individuals have commented that we see the picture of a new United States emerging, and some of those individuals wonder to themselves, is this even a home for me? And then there are some who exercise their civil right to not vote at all, or to vote for a third candidate. And those too, at this point, might feel like their choice is validated in this election as they decided to abstain from what seems to be the tearing of the fabric of civility to its last shreds. We are indeed dancing on logs, all of us. And we need to watch carefully in front of us, lest our next step that, that seems and appears to be so sure, be the ground of our fall. It is no accident that our text for today is 1 Corinthians 13, though this was planned 11 months ago. For it is in this text that we see some of Paul's finest work. This is his hallelujah chorus, or one of the many. And we have done the work in these last weeks, all of us in here, have worked hard as we've gotten through 1 Corinthians. And now we have the ability to really appreciate where and how Paul is giving us these words that he gives us today. We now have what it takes to start to make sense 
of who it is that Paul is speaking these words to. Because as we've learned throughout this series, he is speaking these words to a specific group. And this is a group that has done some of the following. They have let people go hungry. They have been sexual violators. They have believed that they were above the reproach of anyone, even civil society. The Greeks have eaten the food that was sacrificed to the idols right in front of the Jews. And they have gloated in it. They have been just like us. And isn't it good news that the gospel is working here in Corinth? That a community and a church would not be surprised about the news of our headlines, but instead they might be able to offer us the words of encouragement to say, we were there too. When Paul is working with this group of people, he is not working with the perfected community. He is working with the beloved community. And there is a big difference. And so as he makes his way to the end of this letter, he begins to reach his climax And he wants this group to know that he is not speaking in vain, that he hasn't been merely perfunctory in all of these things that up until now he has guarded them against doing. But he actually wants them to see that he has an idea, that he has a vision about what life can be like, about what it can actually embody. He wants to paint them a picture of what it means to live life in the way of love. And he points out this vision and illustrates this in ways that we have not yet seen him do before. He puts language to this word. He doesn't just throw it out there, but he actually gives them a full-bodied illustration of what the world of love looks like. Paul gets a very bad name sometimes in our culture for being a prohibitionist, someone who guards us against you shall not do this or you need to do this. And he can sometimes be a catalyst for some fundamental conservative thinkers. But if you study the text carefully, you will see that he is building in his letter towards this vision where he wants his community to know what it's like to live in the work of love. And so Paul tells us this as he puts language to this work. He says in verse 4, And if you pull out your text, you'll see you have the word patient. The word in Greek is long-suffering. What it really means is great pathos. The King James often translate that word right, patience. It gets a little tossed around in the English language to just assume that we wait it out. No, we suffer long. That's what the work of love is. 
In verse 5, you have the word resentful. The word and the feeling behind the Greek is that love keeps no record of wrongs. That it doesn't harbor the things inside that create bitterness and anger. It keeps no record of wrongs. And then in verse 7, Paul tells us that love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. And his word for endure is the word hupomeno, which means that you remain under, that you stay, that you stick around. Not just that you endure silently, but that your presence remains there. And then, after Paul gives us these explicit pictures of what it means to live the life of love, we get to some of the best parts of this chapter, and here is something that I think that we cannot lose sight of in our world. In the next paragraph, Paul is going to devote the future The great coming, he's going to devote this whole idea to the future and the great coming of the Lord Jesus. And what Paul wants his people in Corinth to know and to not miss is that the world of love is not an abstraction, but it is deeply connected to the inbreaking of the kingdom of God. For Paul, love is not just good, though it is, but it is also eternal. And by that, it lasts forever because it is a taste of the world in which that God desires us to live so badly. And by eternal, we mustn't think of the word celestial because that's too disconnected from the actual world in which we live but that love is indivisible from the coming of the reign of Jesus, which is a historical event, meaning it will take place within the landscape of human history. And as much as we participate in the life of love, we participate in the very substance and being and reign of the coming king. And this is perhaps the greatest anchor that we can have as Christians in our current landscape and the greatest security for our foothold out there because as Christians we believe that love actually has a face. And that ultimately it looks like the one who is the great lover of this world. And that in love looks like the great lover in this, of this world, the one who is revealed in Jesus Christ, we will always hold fast to what his love looks like, which is the love of self-giving. The way of Jesus does not just give us a model of what love is, but it gives us the very possibility for the creation of love itself. 
Now, does this mean that we as the church have the monopoly on love because we believe that it is a sign of the inbreaking of the kingdom of God? No. The one who has chosen us before the foundation of the world in love, the one who has been identified as the great lover, is not selfish with his love, nor is it hoarded or parceled out or portioned out, even by race and creed. Jesus Christ was fully human, and there is no human being who cannot know him, nor is there any human being who he cannot know. But as Christians, we believe that love is not abstracted, nor is it idealized, but it is enfleshed. It's embodied. It is incarnate as he is incarnate, and it is eternal as he is eternal. And as we live in love, we live, therefore, not just in tolerance and in acceptance, but we live as people who are oriented and who are already participating in the future of the cosmos here and now. For the Christian, love is not tame, nor is it safe, but it has allegiance not to anything of this world. And because of that, it can fully devote itself to everything in this world. And to miss that would be to miss the point of Paul's strongest passage about love. That love positions itself, it orients itself, it situates itself, it distinguishes itself in a body, in the world, in a certain way. So what does that mean for us, the church, today? Well, as a church, we have been through times like this before. From the first century of Roman emperors to the rise of Charlemagne to those who have fled the Roman Catholic faith to those who came to this very hunk of rock to make a life for themselves that embodied some form of freedom. The church has a wide 2,000-year history where it has often had a very tenuous relationship with the state. It has been respectful at best, and it has been resistant and defiant at other times. We need not feel like we are entering into unmapped territory at all. We've been here before. But also, we mustn't lose sight of the fact that our orientation comes from no one other than Jesus himself. And as we are faithful to his self-giving image of what love looks like, so we participate in the reign that we claim is coming and that we will gather around here next week as we proclaim in Christ the King Sunday, and that is not to be abstracted from history, it is to be connected to it by how we love one another. Let us close today by learning from our dear friend Dietrich Bonhoeffer, whose beloved friend Everhard Bush wrote a tome, which I have a 
picture of over here, you can see how big it is. Eberhard Bethke was one of Dietrich's best confidants and spent his life work recording his life story. He knew him better than anyone else, and he has given us a great gift in this work. And as he talks about what it was like when Bonhoeffer came to America in 1939, he gives us an insight into the struggle of what it means to live this life of love. Because in the spring of 1939, Bonhoeffer had come to the United States to work and also to flee the national landscape of Germany. No sooner did he arrive than he was riddled with anguish for reasons that his closest friends cannot even understand. By mid-June, he was determined to return, despite endless efforts of his American colleagues to keep him in New York. He had recurring letters and visitors with people who stayed with him and begged him to stay. Not only did they want him around, they wanted to benefit from his work, but they did not want him to return to the place in which he would be the most at risk. And there in his uh, home for writers in residence at Union Seminary, the person who came in after him said that the floor was littered with cigarettes and unfinished papers, so one has a picture of the toil and the anguish that he felt in making this decision. So by June, he was determined to return back to Germany, and he made this decision alone. And the best attempt that we have to understand what it is that drove him towards this is in a letter that he wrote to Reinhold Niebuhr in some ways to make sense of what it was that he did. And he says this, I must live through this difficult period in our national history with the Christian people of Germany. I will have no right to participate in the reconstruction of the Christian life in Germany after the war if I do not share the trials of this time with my people. And it was only weeks later that he was on a boat across the Atlantic, and we all know what happened next. But the principle is sure. That love leans in. Brene Brown, in her wonderful talks on vulnerability, uses that wonderful Leonard Cohen song as she explains what love really looks like as it is enfleshed in a broken world. She says, it's a broken and cold hallelujah. At times, that's what it is. Because it is concretely captivated and motivated by the suffering of human life. It grows out of the way of Jesus. It is big enough to handle the turbulence of history. It is big enough to direct Bonhoeffer in his most desperate hour to return into the heart of conflict. And it is big enough for all of us in our American civic culture today, if we trust and if we are willing, it will be big enough to hold us in our coming conversations. Because it grows out of the way of, of Jesus and our allegiance above all is only to him. And it is only from there and from that allegiance that we are truly free to love. 
We are free to love Donald Trump. We are free to love Hillary Clinton. We are free to love Ben Carson. We are free to love Chris Christie. We are free to love Tim Kaine because it is not about common ground. That is the work of civil dialogue, which is another sermon altogether. But this is about the freedom to love. The freedom to love from a distinctly Christian orientation, which means agape, long-suffering, hanging in there, rooted on the future, and allegiance to none other than Jesus Christ. Let us pray. Gracious and loving God, we have our work cut out for us. And as we are dancing on logs here in this stage of human history, we ask for the guidance of your spirit to move us, to direct us, to help us to recast the vision of what love is and to remind us that the conversation of common ground is a different one. But it starts with the orientation of love. So let us be captivated by this vision that Paul gave to a very broken community in Corinth. And as he believed that it would restore and renew them, so let the image of Jesus Christ restore and renew us. In your name. Amen.